This is a Vault Studios production. I'm Spencer Brudig. I'm Will Johnson. This show contains graphic material and is meant for mature audiences. This week on True Crime Chronicles. The crime was so violent in nature, so specific in nature, the way that she was murdered. You remember these cases. They don't go away. You never, they're your nightmare cases. They're your cases that once you start them, you can't put them back down. In the fall of 2017, a convicted killer named Anthony Shore sat on death row in Texas, months away from his scheduled execution. He was convicted for four murders, one woman and three girls, and police have always wondered, are there more victims out there? And as Shore's execution is drawing near, a Texas ranger by the name of Brandon Bess got a phone call. So this ranger got a phone call with a tip about Shore. Oddly, uh, this is the only case that I've picked up this way. I got a phone call from a man who's a captain in the United States Navy that works in Washington, D.C., who's a medical doctor, Dr. Michael Schwartz. Dr. Schwartz called and said that there was a man on Texas death row named Anthony Allen Shore, and he said that he was familiar with um, several um, potential serial killings that had taken place in the Houston area, the Calder Road killings, the I-45 corridor, and that um, he felt like Anthony Allen Shore, before he's executed, should be interviewed. But there was a limited amount of time because there was an execution date already set, and Shore at the time was also involved in a false confession scheme. He was basically going to take the blame for another death row inmate's murder, the 1998 death of Melissa Trotter. So with the clock ticking and thinking that maybe Shore could be tied to another case, the execution was postponed. I've, I've interviewed a couple of confirmed serial killers. Shore's a very smart, was a very smart man. Um, he was intelligent, not just smart. He was intelligent and smart, if there's a difference in those two things. Anthony was um, very inquisitive as to why we were there. And it didn't take long for Shore to figure out it was one case in particular that Bess was interested in. Murder going back decades to late summer 1983. A 20-year-old woman by the name of Susan Eads, unsolved but not forgotten. He had indeed been interviewed about the case several times in the past because he looked good for the case. Because the way he killed his victims and the way Susan was unfortunately murdered was the same way he did it. The method of killing had earned Shore a nickname, the tourniquet killer. He would strangle his victims, and that's how Susan Eads had been murdered back in 1983. So now face-to-face with the convicted and condemned serial killer, Bess took his time, and it took more than one meeting. My ranger partner from Livingston and I interviewed him first, and he didn't like my partner. So that interview lasted about 30 minutes. It was complete untrust. Shore wanted to go back to his cell. My partner recognized that, that Shore would not talk around him. So I went back by myself again, gained Shore's trust, later took another ranger from Decatur, who's done a number of serial cases, back uh, after we had gained his trust to interview him. Shore was a a very odd individual who confessed to the crimes that he had committed, again, to us, as well as a number of other crimes, including between 50 and 100 sexual assaults that he said he committed that he was never captured for in the Houston area. But as Shore opened up and started talking, they honed in on the Susan Eads murder. Shore told us that the four homicides that he committed were the only homicides that he committed. Shore said, I'm a serial rapist. Um, That's what I did. And when a date rape drug called Rohypnol came on the scene, he said, I didn't have to kill women anymore. I could 
drug them and they would never know who I was. They would have no memories of the events that occurred around them. He was very cold and calculated about that. He had no no emotion, no remorse, no anything. He was just a, a horrible, mean, rapist, killer human being. But outside of those four murders, the serial killer swore he had nothing to do with the murder of Susan Eads. He swore up and down it wasn't him. More than three decades before that meeting with Anthony Shore, 20-year-old Susan Eads was living and working in Seabrook, Texas. Seabrook is this small town 30 miles southeast of Houston on the edge of Galveston Bay. It's a really scenic place known for fishing and just being a waterfront community that laid back life away from the big city. It was also right next to NASA. So you had a lot of people that lived in the Seabrook community that were involved in the space industry. Dennis Eads, Susan's older brother, recalls life in Seabrook back in the 80s. Well, the Seabrook, Nassau Bay, Webster, Clear Lake area you know, it had a lot of bars in it. That's when they, were, they could have two for one happy hour before they changed the rules. And, uh, and Seabrook is a lot smaller than it is today. But yeah, I'd say the nightlife was definitely booming. Because there were well-paying jobs nearby at NASA. Well-paying jobs and oh, all the hur- hurricane people in town. And Susan was one of four siblings, working multiple jobs in those days, enjoying life and making money. As a waitress and a DJ at bars in the area, and her siblings describe her as fearless, tenacious, funny, um, very determined, and had her whole life ahead of her. Susan's sister, Deborah, shared a bedroom with her in their Seabrook home. I loved her so much. She was so funny. She, even at home, she was just a live wire, just, you know, full of excitement. You know, I, th- I think in the, the thing, the, the, uh, the little story thing that I wrote about her, she used to, um, she loved animals, you know, and so she, uh, we had a little dog, and so she was always talking about wanting to be a, a veterinarian. And then she also loved um, commercials, you know, back then all the commercials, the hair products and the, you know, the teeth whiteners and the, you know, so she would um, mimic the commercials, you know. She was just a lot of fun, you know, just, she was just a live wire, just, you know, always busy, you know, doing something. She loved to dance. I danced some, but I didn't love it like she did. I wasn't into the country and western stuff. I wasn't a big country and western fan, but she was. But she loved all music. Susan stayed busy with her waitressing jobs, dividing her hours between Charlie's Club and another place called the Prickly Pear, and life seemed good. The only thing that seemed off, and her family would remember this years later, looking back on that summer of 1983, was a job she took on a yacht. So she was a waitress and a DJ. She could kind of do it all. And she was offered this bartending job on this cruise around Clear Lake. And her sister says she was nervous about Susan taking the job because she thought it sounded dangerous. But she took the job, was paid good money. But then when she got home, she remembers Susan saying that she was angry and scared even because of the drugs on board. She mentioned cocaine and just that there was this scene on the yacht that she wasn't comfortable with. She was so angry and so scared because of all the drugs on board, all the cocaine. I mean, she just, you know, was livid. And Susan's sister felt like, you know, 
please don't do this again. Don't go take another job like this. It, it's it's dangerous. And that was the same year Susan was murdered. Now, there's no direct connection. It's just a memory that Susan's family shared with me as they started thinking about the events in Susan's life that led up to the murder. Another interesting story is Susan's siblings said, Right before the murder, they remembered Susan actually coming to her mom in the family home and kind of jumping in her lap, saying she was scared, but she she really couldn't explain why. Really uncharacteristic of her. And so mother was like, okay, well, I'm here, you know, you don't have to be scared, but you need to tell me what are you scared about? And Susie said, I can't tell you right now, but just hold me. That was the week she was murdered. That close, I I mean, I can't say that week, but real close up to that point. Those moments stick out now in the minds of Susan's sister and brother all these years later, but they never get the chance to find out what was going on, what was scaring their sister. Because August 30th, 1983 would be the last time they'd see their sister alive. And back then there was no cell phones, you know, there was, it was when you left the house, it was like, hey, I'm going to work, and I may or may not go here, you know, but if I don't come home, that's where I'm going to be. But she left Charlie's. I think she worked there uh, a couple of hours, and then she left and went to work at Prickly Pear. And I think um, she left early. Well, they all left early, um, the people she worked with and their boss. Um, I think she left at, like, 1 o'clock in the morning something like that. And then they all decided to go over to Jason's Brown Saloon, is what it was called. And that's really the last account of Susan that we know of. A witness came forward after her murder saying she was seen talking to this mysterious man that really nobody knew who he was. He had apparently asked Susan to dance and she seemed uncomfortable at the time, but then she left. So from there, they they don't know what happened, for sure. For her not to come home that night wasn't really, I mean, she didn't do it all the time, but she probably that day said, hey, I may or may not be home tonight. I'm going over to Bobby's, you know, her boyfriend. Susan never made it home that night or the next day. And it would be that next day, August 31st, 1983, that Susan's body was found off of NASA Road 1 a busy stretch of road between Seabrook and NASA, dotted with bars and restaurants. Her car, or this 1976 Chevy Monte Carlo, was found parked on the side of the road, and her body was found nearby. She was strangled to death with a piece of her own clothing, and nothing was stolen. And her family always thought it was strange because they said her car looked like it had pulled off the road on purpose and parked. It didn't look like she was forced off the road. To them, it looked like she purposely pulled off. But of course, nobody really knows exactly what happened. Texas Ranger Brandon Bess was only a kid at the time. He'd later learn about Susan's murder. So Susan's body was found near the the Kima Yacht Club. She was naked. She was bound. Um, She was, I think the official cause of death was manual strangulation. So asphyxia due to manual strangulation. She was found with part of the clothing that she was wearing that had been fastened into a ligature, and that ligature 
um, had a stick on it that was put around her neck, and she was strangled to death with that ligature. It was a brutal, brutal death. Horrible. Back home at Susan's house, her sister Deborah remembers the scene as investigators started gathering clues and interviews. That, I have to say, is still a blur. It was just a blur of police officers and mother just... uh, Of course, I went straight to her, and I don't... It was just horrific. But the only real lead they have, if you can call it that, is this mysterious man in a cowboy hat who Susan was seen talking to at the bar the night she disappeared. Nobody really knew who it was. Along the way, they found out his nickname was Cowboy, and they had a sketch of him with this uh, mustache and this cowboy hat. It was a very distinctive sketch, but they never could figure out who he was. But then, as Susan's family grapples with the sudden and violent end to her life, the phone starts ringing. Hello? Repeated calls, and eventually a voice on the other end of the line. The family remembers these calls starting possibly the day she was found, maybe that week. But they say that it took about a week for this man who was calling Susan's mom to say something. And what we mean by hang-up calls is back then, um, you know, you answer the phone and you hear somebody breathing and they won't say anything. And then finally they hang up. Or you hang up, you know, which in this case they hung up. And she said she had received several of those, you know, and that that was odd. It wasn't a, oh, I'm sorry, I've got the wrong number kind of thing. It was they held on, you know, and then hung up the phone. The phone calls left Susan's family frustrated. They they felt like they were getting pieces of information that they never could really fully understand, and it left them with more questions than answers. What did she think about those phone calls? I mean, how did your mom, did she talk about it? Did she keep it inside? Did she? Yeah. No, no, no. So um, the technology was so pitiful back then. So she was just incredible, just superhero, because she just pushed through those phone calls. Uh, The police had given her a script. If you could keep him on the phone long enough, ask him this, ask him this, you know. So she would try and keep him on the phone and ask him questions that they had written out for her to ask because, you know, it was really hard. And the things he he said were horrific. And... um, Did you ever talk to him? He wouldn't talk to anybody but her. So all of us. I would intentionally answer the phone. Yeah. Cuss him out and everything else. Try again, wouldn't talk. I would hang up. And he he knew the difference, even from my voice. If I answered, he wouldn't talk. They were trying to track him and pin down his location, but it just never worked. He would always hang up before they could actually track him down. When the voice on the other end of the line did say something, he talked about secrets and pictures of Susan. But even today, with the audio restored as best as possible, the calls are difficult to hear, and even more difficult for investigators to attach a name to the voice on the other end. Hello? You said you knew Susan. Well, I still can't believe that I never knew of you. I don't understand that. Susan's family kept detailed files on anything they could learn about the investigation and what might have happened to her. But as weeks and then months went by, no arrests were made, no answers for a grieving family in a stunned community. 
And finally, in 2017, Ranger Best made that trip to meet with Anthony Shore on death row, the convicted serial killer who would claim he had nothing to do with her murder. They were back to square one, but investigators weren't giving up on finding a killer. Susan could have been my sister. Susan could have been my cousin. Susan could have been, you know, that high school friend of mine, that, you know, whatever. She could have been that. She deserved, continued. If there's anything, if there's anything left out there, that's why I say the Rangers and the detectives that work these cases, we're no different. If there's, if there's a tenth of 1% chance that we can clear one of these cases, we'll never stop until, you know, we're dead, technically. We'll never stop. I can't say we started over because Seabrook PD worked the case really hard back in 1983. The science in 2017, the science in 2018, 2019 is, um, to say it's light years ahead would be an underestimate. Um, The way things are done now and the way things are done then, we're lucky that we had the things that we had, that they did a a really good job of collecting the evidence. But I'll even go further to say that Seabrook Police Department went above and beyond in the way they've maintained the evidence all these years, keeping the evidence intact through all the hurricanes. We've got cold cases in other jurisdictions where we lost evidence because the hurricanes blow the roofs off the buildings um, because rising water gets them. Seabrook has done a fantastic job of maintaining their evidence over the years. And that carefully preserved evidence would give the decades-old case new life. Ranger Best remembers going through those boxes for the first time, alongside Seabrook Police Sergeant Will Haskett. When Detective Haskett and I sat down that first time and we pull all those old boxes out from the 80s and we start, you know, breaking the seals that haven't been broken since the 90s, we open those up and we find there's evidence that we can see that's never been tested by the seals on it, that those things haven't been opened since the 80s. And what we're looking at definitely would have our victim's DNA on them, but we would hope through touch DNA and through... Um, you know, other types of DNA that can be obtained, uh, saliva, sperm, semen, those things, that we may actually have those on these pieces of evidence that they had kept. And indeed, they did. Um, that, that was the, you know, the quick of it. When we opened those boxes, those boxes um, were like, and I don't know how to describe it, it's like in the movies, when you open that box up and there's the treasure, you found the treasure, when we opened those boxes up and Will and I are looking at those boxes, it was the treasure chest. We had found it. Among the items in those boxes, a stick and straps from the bodysuit Susan was wearing that night, fashioned into a tourniquet by the killer and used to strangle his victim decades earlier. Pieces of the bodysuit, straps, he pulled the straps off, he put a stick on that, and he tightened the stick, a garrot, and that's how she was killed, was with a tourniquet. In addition to the murder weapon, the boxes held articles of clothing. Those items of clothing were turned over to Tanya Dean, a forensic DNA specialist at the Texas Department of Public Safety Regional Crime Lab in Houston. I picked up the case kind of at the beginning. I was um, contacted by Seabrook PD and the Texas Rangers, and I was asked, um, it turns out that there was this case, um, and they had some evidence that had never been looked at. And could they come to the lab and talk to me and ultimately a, a serologist about what the evidence that we had and co- is there anything that could be done? And so the very first thing I do is I just look to see um, 
are they usable profiles? Um, we had several items of evidence that the profile was too degraded or it was too low and there was nothing that we could do with it. Um, but there were items of evidence where there were things that we could do. Dean recommended several items of evidence should be turned over to Amanda Belasco, a forensic scientist, for more testing. So when you first looked at that bodysuit Susan was wearing, did you think, okay, there's DNA here, or did you know? Not right off the bat, no. Um, the bodysuit was black in color, which is going to make things a lot, dif a lot more difficult, especially if I'm looking for blood, which might be... Um, masked by that black color. Um, additionally, we test for semen stains, and those are not always visible by the naked eye. Um, I did have to use an alternate light source to brighten some of those stains, and that is where I was able to find a very faint color stain, and I was able to also identify a blood stain, but it was not enough. There was not enough genetic information there, so I went back and I actually took a cutting from that bodysuit, which collected a larger stain or a larger sample from the item, and we were able to get more genetic information because more surface area was taken from that item. They were able to get DNA from a semen stain, so sperm cells under a microscope, and from that DNA, they developed a male profile. Despite the precise nature of the testing and retesting, all this was happening pretty fast. And it was around the same time that another huge case using similar technology would highlight how powerful these new tools could be. We know we're not going to find our suspect in there, but we may find our suspect's third cousin. We might, might find our suspect's uncle. We may find those things. And that was a lead based on a case out of California. So now we've all jumped in that. We've all, and, and this case is a success story of just that. From but the Golden you, State Killer. The Golden State Killer, absolutely. That's the that's the one that uh, that broke it for everyone that showed us that can actually work. So that case really put forensic genealogy on the map, this idea that you can find a suspect through distant relatives that are uploading these ancestry profiles online. And so I think it's given a lot of new momentum to cold cases and to investigators and to families who are looking at different avenues and different ways to go about solving these cases. And eventually, using the DNA profile and after sifting through thousands of names and possible relatives, they identified a living relative willing to be swabbed. And that was the final clue. More than just a clue, actually. The final proof they needed to identify the killer, a man named Arthur Raymond Davis. They had the DNA. They had been able to work it all up. They'd been able to link it to the suspect in this case. And I felt confident in the results of the DNA and all the scientific evidence to be able to draw the conclusion that they did in fact have the right person. And so we were able to close the case out. Ranger Brandon Best put in the call to Susan's family and for the first time gave a name to the man who brought Susan's life to an end over 30 years earlier. I think the words were, we got him. The words were, it's him. We know who it is now. The words were probably the same that cold case detectives have just, um, it's those words that you don't get to say very often. The emotion, um, you know, I, th I think I was emo as emotional with um, the Eads family that night as I was when my firstborn um, was born. It was that feeling. It was truly that feeling that you had really accomplished something. Arthur Raymond Davis was 35 years old at the time. He died from injuries in a car crash. Ray Davis was driving a Corvette in December, uh, December the 16th 
1983, which is only a couple of months after the murder. He was driving a red Corvette at the time of that crash, and that car was registered to his girlfriend. The interesting thing about the girlfriend is Seabrook police tell us the girlfriend was working at the bar where Susan was last seen. She sold roses, and she was called a flower girl of sorts. It was popular back then for guys to buy roses for their dates, and that's what she was doing in the bar that night. Police also told me she came to Seabrook police after Susan's murder and offered to help, but they didn't realize that until they had her name all these years later and started going back and, and tracing things. With Davis identified as Susan's killer, investigators knew they'd want to talk to his girlfriend. But they said that they really weren't able to get any more information on a motive or how he knew Susan or really any more about the murder. Certainly has not provided us with a reason he would commit this crime or a, um, a pattern of criminal activity that suggests this. There's nothing that we have that suggests that Arthur Raymond Davis would ever commit a crime like this. Without a doubt, they knew who killed Susan, but how he knew her, if he knew her, what happened that night, and why he killed her, those questions remained unanswered. We know who he is. We know that he is the person that committed this crime. We know that he lived in our area for three to five years. We've talked to um, one relative, a former um, through marriage relative, not an actual relative relative, but a former sister-in-law. Um, and she didn't have much information to provide about him. She didn't know a lot about him. So they have their guy, but they still don't have a motive. And that's really what they're asking for now is the public's help. They want to hear from people who maybe knew Arthur Raymond Davis back in this time period. But it's interesting because we don't know much about him, right? He was 35 years old. He was a Vietnam vet, a fishing boat captain in the Seabrook area. But other than that, we really don't have much to go on. And we still don't know how he knew Susan. We need somebody down there. We need to know if there are other victims or there are other cases laying in one of those other um, evidence storage facilities at one of these other police departments that has Ray Davis's DNA on it. I just cannot imagine the violence related to this crime, to Susan's death, that this is the only crime that he committed. I just, I can't believe that. So I believe there's another victim out there, another victim's family out there that needs closure. And with the, the I-45 corridor killings that went on for so long, those cases we know are not all committed by the same person. We know there are multiple killers out there that committed those crimes. Do I believe that Ray Davis could have committed some of those crimes? I do. I do. Are there remains that are in places um, that haven't been recovered that Ray Davis, did Ray Davis rent property? Did Ray Davis, you know, we have a picture of Ray Davis on a horse. We need to know where that picture was taken because do we have potential victims that have been buried somewhere by Ray Davis in the past? Our mother, uh, even when she went to her deathbed, she really felt like there was more than one person involved. And so, um, I mean, who knows? Maybe this Arthur was definitely uh, the, D you know, the DNA match and everything, but what if there was more? I don't know. Did Ray Davis do this to anyone else? Did he commit other murders? Did he commit other crimes because we know what he did in the 60s. We know what he did in the early 70s, but we lose him about 1973 or 74 until he's picked back up again at this crime in 1983. 
One final note about those phone calls made to Susan's family, her mother specifically, after her murder. The calls continued to come in after Arthur Raymond Davis was killed in a car crash. So clearly someone else was involved in making the calls, if not involved in the murder itself. Ranger Brandon Bess has his own ideas about those calls, that the serial killer Anthony Shore might have something to do with them. And I'm not convinced that those weren't him. I'm not sure those calls weren't Anthony Shore taunting the family. Because he made other suspicious phone calls. He did, and he worked for the telephone company. Yeah, could have been him. Susan's family can have some peace of mind knowing who assaulted and brutally murdered her, knowing he's no longer alive. But their pain and Susan's pain and death never goes away. Susan is the victim here. Um, And you can't even allow yourself to go there to what she suffered with. You just have to shut it off. For me. Um, I can't, I can't even, I can't even let myself go there. For other families that have had to um, deal with something like this, I hope that they know that it, it can, it can be solved. They can find that person and bring them to justice. You know, to give people uh, hope that there are dedicated, um, incredibly intelligent um, people that really care um, and have the expertise with this technology um, to make this happen. But also, just as important, um, I think, is to let pe- those people that do that do these horrific crimes, to let them know that they're not going to get away with it. We know who did it, but the story isn't closed. You're still looking for why. Yeah, sure. All right, I'm back with Reed Redmond and Spencer Brudig. And guys, one thing we don't get into in this story that some listeners may be aware of is that Susan Eads was murdered at a time and a place where there were actually a a lot of murders, uh, some solved, some unsolved, but it's known as the Texas killing fields. And people who follow a lot of true crime might know about the killing fields in Texas. Susan Eads was not apparently related to the murders that are commonly associated with the killing fields. Anthony Shore and his murders, who we talked about at the beginning, the serial killer on death row, he also uh, is sometimes lumped in with the killing fields. However, in this case, they're not associated with the killing fields. So uh, not to confuse all of our listeners too much, but you you might have heard about the killing fields. These cases uh, are in a similar area where uh, dozens of women turned up dead, and there are perhaps different killers associated with those cases. So it gets convoluted, but Susan Eads, not related. And Will, the I, I kind of first want to talk about this, the yacht story, right? We we touched on it in the episode, um, this idea that Susan, you know, took this job on a yacht. She wasn't totally comfortable. It sounded like she wasn't comfortable with the job in the beginning, but it was good money, so she decided to take it. And then she had this negative experience that resulted in her coming back and, you know, crying um, in her own apartment um, and, and not really wanting to talk about it. Is there any do, is there any more information on that? Can we can we kind of close that storyline up? Yeah, I mean, really, the only connection that we can maybe 
consider is that she worked on this yacht, had a bad experience, and we know that Arthur Raymond Davis was potentially working on yachts as a captain in, you know, in the area at the time. So do we know if he was on that yacht that she was working on? No, we don't. But maybe there's a connection there. Um, it's just one of the, you know, if you want to call it a loose end or it's one of the stories that come up when we hear about Susan Eads and, and her story. And speaking about, you know, Davis being out and about in the area at this time and, and living in Seabrook, I'm looking right now at an old photo of Arthur Raymond Davis next to a police sketch of that mysterious man who was seen with Susan Eads the night she was killed. And granted, there were probably quite a few guys in coastal Texas in the 80s with mustaches and cowboy hats. They look a lot alike. Right, right. He's got this kind of classic 80s look, if you will. But it's crazy. We talk about it in the episode how, you know, somebody did that drawing, when an investigator, someone with the police department back in the 80s when there was basically one witness, I believe, who saw her talking to this guy with a cowboy hat on. And it turns out, all these decades later, all this investigation as it, you know, comes to an end and they figure out who it was that, you know, he really does look like that initial sketch. It's just crazy that they have been able to learn about, you know, where he was. I, I believe they say like in the 60s and 70s even, but they kind of lose track of this guy in the 80s and what, you know, what they know about him and then what they don't know about him is pretty interesting. Well, there's also some odd connections between Anthony Allen Shore, you know, this death row inmate that was a serial killer uh, who has been since executed, and this Arthur Raymond Davis. I mean, I I know that it's mentioned that uh, the detective had said that he he thinks that there may have been some sort of connection. I mean, there's odd things, odd things that are that connect them, like using, you know, this uh, ligature to strangle their victims. Uh, You know, how many people do that? Also, the idea that it could have been Anthony Shore calling and doing these hang-up calls. Is there any working theory as to why he might have wanted to do that if he wasn't the actual killer? No. And, and you know, we hear the ranger in this story say, you know, he, he's not convinced that it wasn't him. Other than just to taunt the family and, you know, whether it was it one person calling and then somebody else did it after Davis's death, we just, we really don't know. The tapes of those phone calls, you hear a little bit of that audio and I've heard more of it uh, because you can barely hear, you know, this person on the other end of the line. Um, and Grace White at KHOU, you know, they brought those tapes um, to police after having done some work to to enhance the sound. But it's still really difficult to tell. And they weren't able to tie it to anyone in particular. It's a really odd detail on this long sort of meandering story about what happened. But you can only imagine how terrible that must have been for the family and for her mother in particular, who was getting these calls and trying to engage the caller, right? I mean, you know, he calls, He, if you listen to them, he talks about having pictures and she's trying to get the caller to meet up with her. That meeting never took place. They never really figured out who was calling. Yeah, there are a, a lot of unsettling things about this story, but I think the thing that'll keep me up tonight is those phone calls. You know, the bottom line for investigators in all this is that they have identified who killed Susan Eads. What they don't know, as we make clear, is you know, what was going on. Did he know her? Did he kill anyone else? You know, were others involved? And that's really what they want to know. They want more information about this guy to see if there were other crimes. So that's why they're still asking people to contact the FBI or the Seabrook Police Department if they happen to know anything about this individual from from a long time ago. Spencer, if 
people want to talk about this story or other stories from True Crime Chronicles, where can they go? We've got a Facebook group called Inside the Crime Vault. Uh, we're approaching 5,000 members, and it's a great place for you to connect with um, us personally. We're in there moderating and asking questions and other like-minded uh, true crime aficionados. So uh, check out Inside the Crime Vault, and uh, we'll see you in there. And Reed, I know you're working on a story for next week. Can you give us a preview? Yeah, we're uh, we're digging up a case from the Pacific Northwest from over a decade ago, and it's uh has a lot of twists and turns. All right, we'll be back next week with that story. For True Crime Chronicles and Spencer Bruding and Reed Redman, I'm Will Johnson.